This is not a dream, not a dream. We are using your brain's electrical system as a receiver. We are unable to transmit through conscious neural interference. You are receiving this broadcast as a dream. We are transmitting from the year 1999. You are receiving this broadcast in order to alter the events received. Our technology has not developed a transmitter strong enough to reach your conscious state of awareness. But this is not a dream. You are seeing what is actually occurring for the purpose of causality violation. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. A production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, January 29th, 2018, and today we'll dig into systems theories a bit by reconnecting with engineer and composer Jordan Barty. We met, we met him last May on episode... It's the end. ...under the name Sync Century. It's really happy... I'm really happy... ...with... Oh, I'm, I'm happy to be... Continuing this conversation. Welcome back, Jordan. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Thanks for having me back. You bet. So, um, boy, I don't even know where to start. But um, <laughs> <laughs> it's the masculine scientific. That's how it goes with this family. <laughs> yeah, the masculine scientific project. What do you make? So, like. The thing that I'm kind of blown away by is the timing of you coming to this stuff in 2017. Yeah. What, what do you make of this moment that we're in with the Me Too moment and the work that you've done this past year? Yeah, uh, geez, that's a, that's a very deep question. I mean, to me, it, it speaks to the... Um, to the prescience of that of the of the film Prince of Darkness, actually, it's really weird to watch it in in 2018. It's like, you know, it's an old movie. Like it was released in uh, 1987, or over 30 years ago. But the concerns feel so contemporary, especially vis-a-vis this whole uh, issue of, like you said, the, the masculine, uh, the, the masculine scientific project, and and even in the kind of the specific, the specific theme in the film of like workplace sexism and harassment it's like it aligns so perfectly with the moment that we're in as for how i've sort of found myself cracking open prince of darkness at this particular moment uh i i'm not really sure i mean it was part of a of a deeper synchronistic chain of events i suppose in my in my own life but uh but yeah, it does feel like part of kind of a a wider cultural alignment, I guess I would say, that we're experiencing. And then when you crack open Carpenter, do you get the sense that he he has a conscious awareness of the symbols mm. that he's using? Or do you think this is just the architecture of the universe that comes through creation? I actually think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think that, 
I think that Carpenter is is obviously playing with symbolism in a conscious way to some degree. And that just comes from kind of, you know, it's a, it's a subtle thing when you're analyzing films because uh, it's like some of it can be sort of specified and, 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 and the technique can be kind of pinned down and communicated. But then there are parts of it that are, are just, you just get this sort of a, a more right brainy gestalt impression out of lots of little, you know, it's like little stuff like he'll, like the camera will linger for a little too long, you know, and it's like, or, or, or he'll frame things or put things in focus that are, that don't seem to have like a narrative function. But then if you start to think about them, you realize, you realize that they do have a symbolic function and, and he'll like, his, he'll compositionally like center those things. You know, so I, I think that that stuff speaks to some degree of conscious manipulation. And I actually I, I don't know exactly how deep that goes, because then I also think there's this deeper ground of of unconscious uh, content in well, in any film, but certainly in, in Carpenter's films. And exactly where the transition happens isn't isn't totally clear. And actually, that, that sort of deeper layer of the film is something I haven't, haven't really gotten into yet. I, I, I'd say that most of the stuff in that first video, that, uh, my first video, is, is uh, I would say most of that stuff, I think, is probably conscious on Carpenter's part. But it's all guesswork, obviously. I tried to write him a letter, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't talk to me. So <laughs> it'll have so, to remain a, a mystery for, for now, I guess. I mean, so your thesis about the Prince of Darkness, and this is interesting in that um, it kind of taps into this idea of Lucifer the Lightbringer, mm-hmm. which, but I mean, the Lightbringer being Venus, you know, the feminine. It's, right. Uh, right. Um, is, is that Carpenter is consciously playing with the, the idea of the male and female archetype and how in our modern world sense, you know, the, the age of reason, um, the, uh, what, what was that called? The, uh, the, whatever it was, I can't think of it now. It's, it's this dominance of the, the left brain over the right brain that, you know, we've been right. out, of, out of balance for so long that he's consciously playing with this kind of trying to, put things back into balance as it were. Right. Okay. It's it's just fascinating because you wouldn't think that you would find that in a, a 1980s horror film as the thing. No. No, it's so great. It's it's uh it's just an inst- it's an instance I think of of an artist hi- hiding something in in plain sight to a degree. You know, it's like I, I often wonder why it is that people haven't put this stuff together because to me watching these films, like it's like, even if you don't agree with my interpretation, I think it's, I think it's pretty obvious that there's like this deeply woven layer of, of like some kind of subtext, but I think it's just like, you know, our expectations determine what we see to such a great extent. People, people go into John Carpenter movies expecting genre pieces. And and it conforms to that at the surface level, and so that's all that's all we see. 
it's like if people came into it with the, with the mindset of, you know, because people go into a Kubrick film with a different set of expectations, right? They're like, this is a serious art film by a serious artist. Therefore, I'm going to look for deeper meaning. And then they find that deeper meaning. But, you, you know, you can do that with Carpenter as well. And I would say you can do it really with any film because those, a lot of the meaning is emergent and unconscious. It works its way in there, like, regardless of the, uh, the intentions of the artist. But yeah, in, in Carpenter's case, though, I do think that, that it's actually quite conscious. And, and, and that's another kind of like, uh, just a sense that you develop after a while, you know? It's like, the stuff in Carpenter's films, it's, it's kind of so geometric, it, by which I mean just kind of precise and like, and structured. Like it's, it's, it has the mark of conscious intervention on it. The unconscious stuff tends to, it just feels more kind of organic and it's a, it's a little, it's a little uh, more analog or, or kind of fuzzy or something. The, the conscious stuff is, it just, you can sort of, you can see how it's been worked over. It's, it's actually maybe similar to the, to the Kubrick thing again. It's like just visually watching Kubrick movies. You get the sense after a while, like you start to notice like things are too arranged. It's like every object on the desk looks like it was perfectly placed, like just from a visual alignment standpoint, or like it becomes clear that like all the objects on this shelf were like delicately manipulated. And that's just like a formal thing that you notice independent of any semiotic content. And so it's really similar in Carpenter's films. Like you can just kind of, you can tell that some of this stuff was quite carefully and deliberately up. Yeah. The other interesting point about the timing of this is kind of our Trump moment. And so yeah. as you're talking about the shifting paradigm and your head is spinning on the screen and, and you have, you know, Sam Neill, kind of right. <laughs> in the mouth of madness. It, that's the other strangeness to me about how there's this wind of fascism that's kind of blowing. And I, I noticed yes. that people are getting wrapped up in it. And it's like, you know, it's almost like, don't you see you're getting swept away by something that isn't necessarily, necessarily real, but then that also kind of communicates the unrealness of reality at the same time too. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a scary moment here for sure. And I don't really know. Um, I mean, obviously, obviously nobody knows like how that's gonna, how that's going to play out. It's uh, how it plays out. I, I suppose is going to be partially in, in, in proportion to how much we learned from the 20th century to start with can we identify the same, the same patterns constellating in, in the collective national psyche here and uh, take steps to, you know, release that pressure as it were before it, before it bubbles over into something violent or, or, uh, or destructive in a larger sense. I, I, I don't, I don't really know. Some, sometimes I think we're going to, we're going to, it's going to be kind of a, well, yeah, I just, I just don't know. I just don't know. I'm worried about it though. That's for sure. Yeah. I just don't know 
either. Um, well, let's go back to kind of just your own evolution through this. So when I spoke to you, you were kind of telling the story about how it's, it's funny. Um, when people want to create an intellectual product, I think for whatever reason, it is this idea, this 19th, 19th century expression, this, you know, this, this tangible book is what, we want to right. we want to create a book. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and for whatever reason, that is that's the object that the intellectual desire is to to uh, the formal book. Um, tell it, are, is the chasms of the real or chasms in right. the real? Is this is this still a thing that you're committed to, or do you think? Like the, the there's just it's so much easier to create this digital expression, but that's both visual yeah. and and literary, and but because it's on YouTube, it it just doesn't have the same uh, resonance, I suppose. But are you are you okay with that, or where are you at with the process? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um... I mean, there's definitely something that's still appealing to me about, about a book, you know, because it, I feel like with a book, you can really, you can, you can tie the whole thing together in a more integrated way. On the other hand, like there are some major disadvantages in a bunch of different domains, actually. Like on the one hand, it's, it's obvious that like people just don't read that much anymore. So your, your potential audience is much wider doing a, um, an internet-based project. But also I think for this specific content, like, like film and media, or so it's grounded anyway in film and media analysis. Like you don't really want to be writing about that stuff because it's so imagistic to start with. So I think that the video format is like closer to the source material and in certain ways actually allows you to be much more expressive and communicate ideas much more precisely. It's like things that would take me several pages probably to describe some imagistic series of connections in a film. With video, I can just show it. Like I can just make a little collage and just like put the elements on screen together and it almost doesn't need any verbal articulation at all. So you can just you can just hit people with the correspondences in a much, in a much more visceral way. So I don't know that I'm not going to try to put all this into a book at some point. I, I might still try to do that, but it, for now I'm just, just focusing on the video stuff, I think. And it's, it's more, it's more organized maybe than it, than it appears. Like I've got kind of, I've, I've got maybe like 10 videos kind of pretty much plotted out. And uh, I'm, I'm building sort of some specific stuff with it. It just, of course, it just, it just takes forever. Like, cause I'm also trying to do interesting, like graphical formal things with it. And it, uh, I'm trying, I'm trying to like resist all of my, <laughs> my perfectionistic tendencies or whatever, but I still just get caught up in like, in little stuff that ends up, it ends up taking like a month, a month and a half to do each one of these videos. But I don't know. I'm committed to getting through this first kind of, string of them let's say maybe 12 or 13 videos or something and then set to see where it goes from there i guess yeah i i appreciated in your hello world when when you're talking about premature optimization 
Totally. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big one. And, and, and I have, I struggle with that too, where what really needs to be done is just to get stuff on the page and the, 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 exactly. edit, the, yeah. ed, the editing can happen anytime, but just getting, I think I heard Stephen King say that like one season really is the amount of time it should take to get a draft, like an entire work out. And it's like, wow, that's amazing. Totally, to me. Yeah. It's, it's amazing because I get lost in, in instead of the forest level, the you know, the, like on the on the ground, the tree level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no substitute for just for just working the process, obviously, because we're well, getting back to what we were talking about before. It's like there's what you think you're doing, and then there's what you're actually aspiring to do which is a much more complex mixture of conscious and unconscious stuff. And it's like the, in the act of making this stuff, it's always, it always ends up being, it always ends up being different than what I think it, it's going to be going into it because you're actually collaborating with your unconscious. And so a, a big part of the video thing for me too, is just like trying to surface those unconscious contents. And I feel like I learn a ton that way by by making the stuff it's not it's not purely like an expository thing of like i've got this thing all planned out and now it's just like doing the grunt work it's also like the thing is really changing and coming into life as you as you go through the uh the 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 artistic process i suppose yeah well let's talk about the videos a little bit so you were saying so they're the part of the fun is that they do seem uh stream of consciousness but you can tell that they're not you know that the element right. there is a conscious thought process to the various elements elements that you're employing and so like uh, when when there is a joke um like you show the, the scorpions album for a second, you know, like <laughs> I'm glad you noticed. <laughs> <laughs> like there, you can tell there's a lot of thought behind everything, but at the same time, it appears like that you're just winging it. And so, like, uh, tell me about how, uh, scripting one of these. Is yeah, it, so, is it so that's the thing. Or? I I don't I don't actually script it at all because I I I don't like I don't like the way I sound when I'm reading off a script. Like it it just I'm just not good. At, I'm not good at like some people are really good. I think at delivering lines in a way that feels natural, mm -hmm. but I'm terrible at it. Like it just, it just always sounds, at least to me, it sounds really stiff. And, uh, and so in order to, and I, and I, and I think that people, people distrust that on YouTube also, like the medium seems, it seems better when it's, when it feels a little more personal and a little more off the cuff. So, so what I, what I do is I just, I just, I take, you know, I take a week or two weeks or however long it takes to, to like, you know, I, I bracket off the, I like kind of chunk, chunk off the, the portion of material that I, I think I want to make a video about. And then I just kind of think it over for a week and let it percolate until it reaches some kind of critical mass. And I feel like I'm ready to talk about it. And and so it, it's outlined out, but but kind of only in my head, 
and then I just try to, to improvise my way through the material as best I can. And then I'm like ruthless in editing it. Like I, I usually cut out half, half of the material. Like these videos so far have been ending up like 20, 25 minutes long. Uh-huh. All of them, all of them have been like, you know, an hour or even like an hour and a half of like rambling. <laughs> and then I, I, yeah, I try to cut it into a more coherent and like snappy structure. Yeah. Right. What about, I mean, so the, the thing that I wonder about is there is kind of a, a style of editing video editing now where there is kind of this, this choppiness because yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. And I don't know if there's a name for that. And I think we're just used to it now because because of digital editing. Totally. How 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 much are, how conscious are you of that? I mean, so audio audio editing is way way easier because you can seamlessly take pieces out, and it sounds like the speech is just one uninterrupted pattern. But with yeah. with visual, you can actually see facial tics change because of for the, sure. the yeah. editing process. And actually, I I'm so cued into audio from my like years studying electronic music and audio production stuff that I can I can hear all the edits they make even in even in pure audio stuff. Yeah, and it can be really distracting. Like like oftentimes, like if you watch reality TV shows and stuff, like. The, some of the sentences are just completely constructed out of like whole cloth. Basically it's like, it's like every word is like cut from <laughs> some other source or whatever. But uh, yeah, I don't know if there's a name, there, there should be a name for it because it's definitely like a, like a style now. It's like a kind of YouTube, like hyper edited style. Um, my cutting so far does approach that, but I try to, I try not to do it all the time. Like I try to leave some space for more natural cadence. And it depends a little bit on how much I'm, I'm like going like, um, uh, and stuff when I'm speaking, I try to cut that. I try to cut that stuff out because it, it's just kind of wasted dead air. Um, I like, I, I, I kind of like it. Like I, I enjoy the choppiness of it and I, and I like that it isn't trying to hide. It isn't trying to hide the cut. So it's like, it's just, it's like clear that it's clear that you're looking at an edited manipulated product. But then I guess I try to kind of formally, I still like fluid continuous things. So that's part of the idea behind like nesting the cut, the super cutty uh, uh, verbal talking head stuff in that bubble. And then everything that's going on around the bubble is like really fluid and liquidy and like continuous. And it's just kind of like nice, smooth motions. And it never really cuts in that like larger world of the, of the green frame. But uh, the green yeah. frame, does it, does it loop? Or does it? Is it does. That, yeah, it does. It was. It's stupid. Like I, I had this feedback patch. Like the whole thing's from this hardware analog feedback thing, and, uh, and I was like, oh, that's a cool effect. I better record like a little. Like I should have recorded an hour of it, 
But for some reason, I was just like, oh, it's just like a sample. I'm just going to record like 30 seconds. And then, of course, like something happened and I lost the patch and I've never been able to like rebuild it again in exactly that way. Like I can get pretty close to it, but it's, it just doesn't, it never has the same nice like coverage in, in terms of like the whole frame being kind of eaten up by that green gas effect. So I'm stuck with this little 30 second clip. Uh, but I think it works. I think it works. Okay. I don't think, I don't think it's uh it's not like overly noticeable. I do wish it was a longer a longer loop though for sure huh, no i didn't i had i haven't noticed the 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 loop but that's good maybe you only notice it if you stare at it for like hundreds of hours or whatever <laughs> you're editing it <laughs> and then i also really well so the sound so that's something that, yeah <laughs> i mean so there's a one of the things that i'm reminded of and maybe you watched that. So, did you ever watch the show Space Ghost? Oh yeah, yeah, I was a huge Space Ghost fan in high school. Because That's my jam. <laughs> it it there's a, just a flavor of that in your. Yeah, I, thanks. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that that's uh, detectable in there. Yeah, I love Space Ghost. Well, it's because great... so when when the uh, there's little things like everything has a sensory experience so like uh-huh. as as like screens are dropping down there's kind of like a a noise to signify that it's taking work to move the screen right. into place right but even the the green field has its own sound to it too yeah yeah <laughs> and so like these are the yeah. things where like these are obvious conscious choices yes but unless you really, you would just take it for granted. You would just assume, oh no, the green thing has to make noise because it's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I actually don't really know what to say about any of that stuff. That that stuff is so much at the level of just kind of what I like to see and experience. It's like a total intuitive kind of feeling thing. I think that. I think it's definitely like moving in a more of like in the first, the first video I was like more reserved, like not every single thing has a sound effect with it, but it just doesn't seem right. Like I want, I want constant, I want constant sound effects. So I think it's going to, it's going to move more in that direction probably. Well, and then the the other two elements that really kind of say, you know, this is, this is something from the cuff is, is the crown and the glasses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they're just kind of this costume that you 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 wear to present in this in this space. <laughs> yeah. And and so it's like the that's what's fun is because it says you know, I take this stuff serious but at the same time this is all really humorous too. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I just feel, you know, it's just hard not to feel weird like putting yourself putting yourself into your art in that way and and it's you know because it's like you're asking people to take you somewhat seriously and spend like 20 minutes of their time or whatever like listening to you blab about some arcane thing and i just feel like personally like i just need to i need i need some something a little something to lighten the yeah just lighten the mood of that a little bit and and the crown is just like 
was like an accident, basically. Like I knew I wanted to have crooked sunglasses because th- those sorts of canted angles and things are, it's like stuff that's been coming out a lot in my artwork. And it's like, okay, I'm going to have these crooked glasses as like a, like a signature kind of, but then I needed some way to like pin it up on my head. And like, we just happened to have these like toy, like birthday party tiara, like plastic tiaras lying around and it, it worked. So <laughs> the other thing is then is this leap from this green field. So you, you accidentally create this green field patch. Yeah. Yeah. And, and is it the thing that kind of says, Oh, that kind of reminds me of this movie I saw one time a long time ago. Yeah, 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 it was. It was very weird. And so it really was this intuitive moment where it's like, here's the synchronicity, and now I'm going to follow it and see where it leads. Yeah, well, it was it was involved in, in even deeper synchronistic stuff, too. We, did we talk last time about automatic drawing or any of that stuff? I don't remember. We, I don't think so. Okay, well... Well, so one of the things I did with that with that green uh, patch is I I I, st- I started working it into some like still images that I was working on. So at the time I was like still really deep and like I'm writing this book, and I do this thing when I work on any creative project. I like it actually relates to that premature optimization thing. It's kind of a bad habit, but I like I think way to the end and I'm like, what does the final product look like? And so I was trying to make like book covers for this book that I hadn't written like a single chapter of, but it was just a way of like trying to get myself hyped about the project. And so I was making book covers and like integrating this green gas thing. And uh, I made this cover and it was like, I was like, it, it was, when it came together, I was like, ah, that's different. This is an image I haven't seen before. This is an image like not exactly like anything else I've ever made. And I showed it to some of my friends and they were, they were like, they were interested in, in it too. Like it was, it had, it had a sort of a quality to it anyway, like about a month later through some other chain of coincidences, I came across this book called mimetic magic. And like the cover of this book, it was like the same cover. It was like, I had like, like almost like remote viewed this book or had maybe like a precognitive unconscious precognitive, like foreshadowing of finding this book. But then it it got even weirder because at at the time I had this narrative component to my book, which was like all about this like new internet religion that was like going to spread via memes and like kind of like worship synchronicity and also John Carpenter films. That was like, it was like an aspect of this sort of science fiction story I was writing for the book. And then it turns out that this real life book, Mimetic Magic, is like, it's like, it's like a holy book for the, for the cult of tech. I don't know if you know those guys. They're like alt writers that worship like Pepe, this green frog meme. And they're obsessed with this book because the, the cover of the book like has this weird frog on it. And so for them, it's like, it's like part of their like synchronic, like uh, reality tunnel, basically. But then I started reading this book and it's like, it describes how to do automatic drawing, which is something I hadn't really heard of before. And uh, it's like the whole book's like a tutorial basically on how to do it. And the idea behind automatic drawing is that you, you, you don't consciously like draw, 
you just kind of, you, you kind of go into like almost like a trance state and then just let your hand move. And you don't even look at the page. You don't think about what you're drawing. And the idea is that that, that can like surface unconscious communications. And basically I, I found out that I had like a real knack for it. And I started doing these automatic drawings and it was like crazy, the stuff that was coming out of these drawings. Cause it was like all this archetypal mythopoeic symbolic material, highly organized and really quite virtuosic stuff. And in a totally different style to like things I would normally draw. But so that whole sequence, like taken together, it was just one of the craziest things that had ever happened to me. Because it was like, it was like my unconscious suggested this image of this book. And then I found that book and the book contained instructions for how to establish or widen my communication with the unconscious. So it's like, it's like the, it, it's, and, and it all happened in this totally non-local synchronic, maybe lightly precognitive way. And that was kind of my, that was happening at the same time that I was watching Prince of Darkness and kind of awakening to the deeper currents in that movie. Which is so it was like being a, like hell of transmitted a from an unconscious place. <laughs> totally. Huh. Yeah. Well, that movie has, it has all the same themes in it, you know, with the, the dreams from the future and whatever. And yeah, it's very much, uh, it's a very sinky movie by nature. That's for sure. Hmm. Well, so then a couple of the things that I'm like have circled on my page are this idea of emergence and self-organization, which yeah. I read a little bit about from the left brain side of things. Stephen Strogratz wrote a book called The Science of Sync, and that's like biology behaving uh, not synch synchronistically, but like synchrony, right. you know, where they're behaving, totally. yeah. self-organizing in, in a way that is incomprehensible. Right. Schooling with fish and bird flocks and, and things like that. Right? Yeah, but I I definitely think that there's some connection to consciousness in you know in the same field somehow, and that it, I think so too. It's, yeah. It, it, but it's the it's the right hemisphere. It's it's something. It's more what you're talking to, where you're communing with the unconscious that's leading you to bigger revelations. Yeah, totally. The unconscious is a very very smart organ, whatever it is. Yeah. And it, it, uh, it, I, I think that it, you know, I sometimes wonder like, is it, is it actually precognitive in the sense of receiving information from the future? Like maybe the brain is entangled with its own future states or, or some kind of idea like that. Or is it just so good at like detecting and analyzing subtle patterns like so good, like that it can make projections and predictions on the basis of those patterns that, that are so sophisticated and so accurate that it, it ends up behaving as if, as if it were, were precognitive. I'm never totally sure like which side of that question I come down on, but uh, yeah, very interesting stuff for sure. Yeah, there's definitely I could I can see both sides of it cuz um yeah, but it's like it's like the media analysis stuff though. That puts me into a pushes me into a more real precognition sort of direction. 
like, like one of the things I'm trying to build up to with my channel is like a much more verbally articulated version of what I was playing around with in that first uh, video initiation. Mm-hmm. So like all the nine 11 sync stuff. And like some of that stuff is just, it's so precise that there's, it's really hard to, I mean, just take like the way that stuff constellates in back to the future. You know, it's really tight with the whole, you've got the terrorists, You've got a vehicular crash. You've got the appearance of the precise dates in microsymbolically on clock faces and things, but they're there kind of, and, and they're there falling together in time with the, with the terrorist situation. And then there's this whole layer of like, you know, the, the clock tower, which is like a major theme. And that's the other weird thing about it is it's like, it's like the pattern cuts across like multiple levels of organization in the film. You know, there's like stuff down there at the kind of in the, in the, the, the detail or like the ground. And then there's stuff in the, in the figure, as it were, like the actual narrative action. And then there's stuff at the level of like theme or like motif. That's like, that's a pretty strong, like I call it a stack, a stack of synchronic contents. It's like, it's not just one coincidence. It's like, it's piled up or nested in this way. And it resembles the historical content to such an uncanny degree. It's just like, I don't think there's, there's, you know, either the whole thing is just kind of a nonsense, like, like truly coincidental or whatever, or I think it points to some like real non-locality vis-a-vis the unconscious, not just a kind of a pattern, a pattern detecting thing, but yeah, lots more work to be done. (laughs) Uh, in that domain, for sure. Well, so I really enjoyed this book James Glick wrote called The Information, where he he was talking about a lot of these different systems, theories, and entropy, and various things that well, was the first time I'd ever seen them together in one place. And I just thought... I haven't read that. Well, it sounds good. The book club that I, the show is part of did... Thomas Pynchon's The Crying of Lot 49. Mm. And it was published in 1965. And all those same elements were in that tiny little book. And so... Amazing. Yeah. So in speaking of this this precognitive, like he was fully... Uh, he In conversation with the unconscious on some level, that he was able to see the future in the moment before it happens and then deconstructs it. And puts it all back right. together in 150 pages, and you're like, "What the hell?" You know, so like, clearly James, yeah. <laughs> it, clearly James Glick, you know, had a precedence for finding the things that he had in the information. They're they're both fabulous books, and I would recommend them. Um, but it, it, you know, the Crying of Lot 49 definitely encompasses both the left and the right hemisphere because it is the sync journey where mm-hmm. intu- intuition leads the main character to these different things that she's discovering um, about <laughs> entropy and information <laughs> and, and networked um, communication. Uh, very, very cool. Yeah. I was just thinking the other day about um, how Jung's models of the psyche are really like proto-systems models. I mean, they really, you know, like, like even when he talks about individuation, say, like the, the progression of the psyche from a, from a fragmented, disintegrated state to an integrated 
state of wholeness. Like that's a systems transition. You know, that's like, that's like, that's about like synergy in the total system. And it, it strikes me that you could, you could probably bring the Jungian models as it were down to the level of rigorous analogy by, by describing them in systems terms. And I know that there have been some attempts to kind of work on little pieces of that. I read a paper at one point that was some guy trying to think about archetypes in terms of organizational principles and kind of distill them down to little equations or something, which, which I think is kind of a, if it's reductive in that way, I don't think it's so useful. It's like the point from the point maybe wouldn't be to kind of reduce the psychical realm into equations, but just to, but just to provide a level of kind of structural description that could fit coexistent with the direct experiential phenomenological data, which is much more uh, mythic and spiritual in nature. But I, I'm interested in kind of running the, like, like you say, like left and right brain in parallel like that. I think that if you can, if you can, if you can show how the experience is, 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 uh, maybe grounded is not the right word because that gives preference to one or the other, but, but let's just say synchronized, <laughs> synchronized with, with some kind of a, of a fairly rigorous descriptive model. That's, I think that's really, that's a really powerful thing. We don't, we don't really quite have yet, of course, because we don't, fundamentally we don't know what's going on with consciousness and the psyche, but, but that's like, you know, long-term special goals, right? It would be nice to have that someday. <laughs> well, right. Which kind of prompts me to talk about, you know, where you start with Hello World, which is this, this idea of depersonalization and the thinness of reality. And then yeah, yeah. that kind of leads me into this Philip K. Dick realm of, you know, what if what if our construct really is super constructed right <laughs> and i guess that's in, the... in 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 the sense of like like uh we're living in a simulation kind of thing or yeah how do you mean? Yeah. yeah that as as philosophy really gets to the the ground level we we begin to take apart the machine that we're in totally yeah well, for sure, we're living in a simulation in the, in the kind of narrow sense of that, in the sense that your experience is a simulation. It's, you know, it's being generated by your nervous system. It is not the reality that you take it to be uh, naively, right? It's, it's a total construction. And, and that's right in line with current neuroscientific theories, like, we know that vision is profoundly constructive and really all of our experience is, is that way. So, so it's certainly true in that way, whether or not that simulation is like nested within a bigger simulation kind of starts to rub up against the question of like, how do you define a simulation? Is something simulative only in relation to something non-simulative or is it more about the idea of, things being uh, sort of algorithmically uh, generated, right? That like, that, real that there's something deeper in reality than the exoteric manifestation. 
that there's an inward-facing or esoteric domain that is somehow, I think we intuit, like more in line with mathematics or, or some kind of a, of a transcendental order. And that's, that's obviously like a really old mystical intuition or feeling about the nature of reality. Very interesting stuff, yeah. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> <laughs> also, Philip K. Dick is another another one of those figures. Like, he, he he's like seems almost. I think we relate to him as a prophetic figure, but for the most part, only unconsciously. It's like when you look at pictures of Philip K. Dick, oftentimes they're like quasi. He's like quasi deified. Have like halos around him, sort of, or like, and it's, and it's because of the uncanny degree to which he really saw into the future. Like he got the details right, and he got the big picture right. And we can't just say that in our culture. That would be a crazy thing to say. Philip K. Dick was, you know, had a real prophetic imagination that was perhaps precognitively like, like uh, grounded. But so, so instead, it's, it hovers at this like subliminal level. We kind of cloak him in the imagery of prophecy and relate to him as this numinous sort of figure, but never precisely articulated. So I, I think that's an interesting thing about PKD. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Oh, thank you. Super fun. You've been listening to Jordan Barty on 42 Minutes, production of SyncBook Radio and SyncBook.com. We'll link to his YouTube page in the show notes. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider be No, let's not do that anymore. We're not... Uh... If you like this podcast, <laughs> we're not sure where we're at with our subscription service. We had a business model for a time, and now everything is kind of in limbo. Uh, but everything's free for now, so there's that. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much. And you will not be saved by the Holy Ghost. You will not be saved by the God Plutonium. You will, in fact not be saved.
through conscious neural interference. You are receiving this broadcast as a dream. We are transmitting from the year 1999. You are receiving this broadcast in order to alter the events you are seeing. Our technology has now developed a transmitter strong enough to reach your conscious state of awareness. But this is not a dream. You are seeing what is actually occurring from the premise of causality violation. This broadcast will be received by the perceptual centers as a dream. But this is not a dream. 